0: Turn your eyes to the heavens. Our King will return for his own. Every knee will bow, every tongue will shout, All glory to Jesus alone. You guys can be seated. Is this thing on? Okay. That's not the only song we sing that confesses the kingship of Christ. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, that man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Part of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate, fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow with humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Crown him with many crowns, that lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem sounds, all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for me, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. The kingship of Christ is a truth we have professed as a church, historically. Christ made the statement, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And again, in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Boys and Girls Catechism, question number 83, what does Christ do for his people? He does the work of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Question 88, how is Christ a king? He rules over us and defends us. Question 89, why do you need Christ as a king? Because I am weak and helpless. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 9. The office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or in any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Stephen Lawson once said, there is no authority outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham Kuyper. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Which brings us to our passage today, if you would open your Bibles with me, up to Psalm 110. If you have figured it out, we're going to be talking about the kingship of Christ today and his rule and reign over everything. How he is supreme. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you that, that you have exalted your son and crowned him as, as Lord of all. That we, by grace, are bought and purchased and put into a kingdom that is everlasting. That we are, are bought by a king whose dominion is forever. Though all the, the kings of this earth may wax and wane, all the kings of this earth will, will perish, our King remains forever. Help us this morning, Lord, to see that truth as it really is and to put our full confidence in the King of kings and Lord of lords, to not rely on men in whom is the breath of life, but to rely completely on the firstborn from the dead who is exalted over all, who will one day destroy death and as it's defeated forever, we will reign with him in eternal life. Oh, Lord. Help us to bask in this truth and await that great day when our king returns for his own. And every knee bows and every tongue shouts all glory to Jesus alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A part that I didn't read of that psalm, I guess, is is that first title, Psalm of David. Psalm of David. If you think about that, he's kind of the perfect person to write a psalm about kingship. He was the type uh, a type of the king, of which the anti-type was Christ. David's very last words, if you want to look at them with me real quick, in 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. Second Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. These are the very last words of David. In fact, the chapter starts out, now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper for, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Who is this man of which David speaks? Who is this man of which God will fulfill this everlasting covenant he has made with David? Who is that great king that will sit forever on his throne? It is none other but Christ the King. As we confess in our confession, the office of King is rightful to Christ only and cannot be transferred in whole or in part to any other. Christ alone holds the office of King. And so if you turn back with me to Psalm 110, we see such an amazing description of who Christ is as king. David there speaks at the beginning of the Psalm, The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. And this this is the exact argumentation Jesus uses in Matthew twenty two and questioned by the Pharisees about himself being that king. He says, Well, if David called him Lord. If, if, if David spoke of this king that would come and David was able to say that the Lord said to my Lord, then this man can't simply be a son of David because David called him Lord. And in that way, Jesus confesses his own deity, showing himself to be the Lord spoken here in Psalm 110 that the Father speaks to the Son. We see an inter-Trinitarian relationship here. As the Father tells the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In Acts 2, as Peter's preaching a sermon to the Jews, he makes this amazing statement to them. Quoting this passage, speaking of Christ in verse 34, he says, he says this, actually, I'm going to go back to 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a statement, first of all, to Israel as they had just nailed the Lord of Lords and King of Kings to the cross. They had just nailed the God of the universe to the cross. And now the statement is made that that one whom they rejected, the father whom they claim to worship, has exalted and placed in the highest honor. What's the message? The message is you better get right with him. Because the one you just nailed to the cross is ruler and judge over you. From the statement in Acts 2, we see the timing of when Psalm 110 takes place. Psalm 110, the beginning of it at least, took place as Christ was exalted 40 days after after he rose from the dead. That, That exaltation from the Father seated him at God's right hand so that he would sit there and wait as his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. He was exalted as a man. He, he, oftentimes when we think of Christ as king, we, we almost create this separate thought in our mind as if, as if you know, he, was, he was man when he was here and now he's just this almost distant king. But brothers and sisters, Christ is a human king. He is a human king that is seated on a throne far above every rule and every authority on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. There is not a single authority. There's there's not a single realm, as Abraham Piper would say, that over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not cry, mine. Because he has been exalted by the Father. And as that man who was crucified on the cross, he has now been raised to life and seated at the right hand of the Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has that very amazing exclamation of just the wonders of Christ. Within that explanation, he tells us the reasoning for which he bows before the Father. What is his reasoning? This, this passage contains, alludes to Psalm 110. And he says, am trying to figure out where I want to start. Yeah. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When did that happen? It happened when Christ was exalted. The Father exalted him to a name that is above every name. He put all things under his feet. And then you even see the church brought in. That Through Christ as our head, we benefit Paul tells the Corinthians, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or things present or things to come. They're all yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so through the kingship of Christ, we the church receive great benefits. Just as the catechism asks, what does Christ do in his role as king? Well, he rules over us and he defends us. Christ is the great protector Of the church. And we have as a sure and steadfast hope of our soul that all things will be put under the feet of Christ. That he is seated at the right hand of God, which is a pledge to the fact that there is not one thing that will be left that is not under Christ's feet. The last enemy there to be destroyed will be death. Psalm 8, a passage I preached on a while back, the passage says that God put all things under Christ's feet. Hebrews 2, quoting this, it says, it says, At present we do not yet see everything under his feet, but we see him who for a little while made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor by the suffering of death, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Hebrews makes that comparison that, that yes, everything is going to be put under Christ's feet. But right now, we see one who was crucified, who was raised to the heavens, exalted above every name and every power and dominion. And everything is being subdued now to him by the grace of God. So how? How will everything be put under his feet? We continue reading in Psalm 10. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now we know when he was exalted. We know that he has been exalted. And now he sits in God's dwelling place in Zion with his mighty scepter. Ruling in the midst of his enemies. Psalm 45, that, that great wedding psalm of that, that bridegroom leaving his chamber. It says that, his, that Christ's scepter is a scepter of, of righteousness. It rules with righteousness. It says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Christ rules with this scepter That is of complete uprightness and righteousness. He rules with this rod that will destroy all wickedness. He is completely just and holy in his judgments. Notice he does this in the midst of his enemies. I think that's something we as a church can understand, can relate to. We're not down here as a church and everything's just great. We're in the midst of God's enemies. We're in the midst of those who hate God. Psalm forty-five again. It says. It says that the bridegroom's arrows are sharp in the hearts of his enemies. That King, his arrows are sharp in the hearts of his enemies. But there must be enemies for there to be arrows that are sharp in their heart. Christ is currently ruling and reigning from the heavens in the midst of his enemies. We as, we as the church, right? We, we go out, we, what historically would be called the, the church, um, I just forgot what it was called, um, the, the church militant, right? We, we go out as the, the church militant in this time, awaiting that day when we'll be made the church triumphant. But right now, we're the church militant. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. Christ right now is ruling in the midst of his enemies. And there will come a day, as we read at the end of this psalm, when all his enemies will be destroyed, when there will not be one enemy left for Christ to rule in the midst of, but right now, as he is exalted in the heavens, he rules in the midst of them, taking them out as he sees fit until that day when the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 5 continues to describe how Christ makes his enemies his footstool. It speaks of this, this day of Christ's wrath. Now, contrary to the, the day of power spoken of in verse 3, right? Christ right now is in power, but the day of his wrath is yet to come. There is coming a great day of judgment. A day when that king will return with a trumpet call and a cry of command. A day when that king will come and destroy all his enemies. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He'll drink from the brook, by the way. You just heard Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. Then he'll terrify them. He will terrify them. That psalm ends. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Pay homage to the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Why? Because the most exalted and most glorious, the, the, the king of this earth, who, who has the most power on this side of heaven, is nothing in comparison to the king of kings and lord of lords the one who has all the people under him that anyone could imagine on this earth, is nothing compared to the one whose people offer themselves freely on the day of his power. He is nothing in comparison to the one who will come with thousands of his holy ones and execute judgment on all of the ungodly who do such ungodly things. The king seated at God's right hand is far above any king or ruler or authority on this earth. There is none that can compare with his majesty. Look at at verse 6. You see that he's executing judgment among the nations. He's shattering chiefs over the wide earth. There is not a single place that is hidden from the omniscient king. There There is nowhere They can hide. There there are people in Revelation who are crying out, let the rocks fall on us. Let us hide from the wrath of God. Can they do that? No. Because this king will return in judgment and he will be triumphant. He will judge justly. And that just judgment requires the death of the wicked. That just judgment judgment requires that he take care of all evil and wickedness the, the language here is is language that that would it, it would drive a uh, postmodern person crazy he'll execute judgment among the nations he'll fill them with corpses Isaiah 66, verse 24. Speaking of us on that great day, it says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. There's coming a day. When Christ returns, when, when, when the church in victory with him will go out and look upon his victory, they'll look upon the dead bodies, the foes of their Lord, and see that wickedness is done. That all those who rebelled against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords could not stand on that great day. That they had no chance against the sovereign King of the universe. That that all their endeavors, all their might, were nothing in comparison to Christ. There's this prophecy in in Zechariah. Um, And and what we see in that prophecy is is we see these, these four horns and we see these four craftsmen. And somehow, in that prophecy, the four craftsmen defeat the four horns. How? How did these humble craftsmen who have nothing but hammers defeat these, these mighty kings pictured as horns? The craftsmen were building the temple of God. The craftsmen had God's bidding on their side. And so, the, those, those humble craftsmen who were building up the temple of God overcome the might of these four kings. And that is exactly the way the church works. We trust in our sovereign king. We trust in the Lord of lords and king of kings because he is the one who will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He is the one who will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He's the one that shatters chiefs over the wide earth. This last verse of the psalm in Psalm 7, or verse 7, Psalm 110, because he will drink by the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We, we have this, this picture of our great king as, as he fights the battle, as he goes out to win, as he's trampling over kings and crushing chiefs, as he's completely destroying the heads of the wicked. He takes but a second to refresh himself. He takes but a second to take a sip by the stream that he's walking by as he goes out victoriously. He refreshes himself and he continues to fight. That is a beautiful picture of the humanity of Christ as king. That even as he's coming in glory with 10,000 of his holy ones fighting beside him, and they go out to win this battle of which the other side has no odds, no chance. That's a weird way to say that. The other side has absolutely no chance. And Christ takes a little refreshment from the stream as he fights. He drinks from the brook, by the way. The result... After all this is accomplished, after the foes have been defeated, after victory is won, he lifts up his head. He lifts up his head in victory. The battle is accomplished. The wicked are no more. Death is defeated and Christ lifts up his head. I forgot to turn my drum set off. That's what that was. The result of his battle is his victory. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with all of that is that he will execute justly. He's, he's in verse 6 executing judgment among the nations. Judgment requires the death of the wicked. Judgment requires that sinners be slain and cast into that place where the fire is never quenched, of which the victorious ones look out upon in Isaiah 66. Justice requires that every liar, thief, blasphemer, adulterer, cowardice, be thrown into that eternal lake of fire. Justice requires the death of the wicked. That means, brothers and sisters, that we need a king that is a lot greater than David. Because because David could could fight against the foe and he could win the victory for Israel. But he couldn't cleanse your heart. He can't take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. He, He could only fight against the physical enemy in front of you, but he couldn't fight your greatest enemy, which is you. There is only one king who is able to not only kill the wicked, but make a people willing to offer themselves freely on the day of his power. There is only one king who can kill that enemy which so rules over the people of this world, that is, sin. There is only one king who can and will destroy that greatest and last enemy, death, forever. There is only one king who can accomplish that victory of which we will be able to, as his people sing, death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Because, brothers and sisters, the sting of death is sin. And the power of the grave is the law. But thanks be to God, who has given us the victory, in Jesus Christ. And so we have a great king who rules over us and defends us. A king who destroys the wicked justly and yet is able to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. A king who is able to make a people willing and ready to fight on his side, although they were enemies with him. There is no greater king than that king described here in Psalm 110. There is no greater king than the king of kings and lord of lords. Next week, we're going to discuss verses 3 and 4. You probably noticed I skipped over them today we're going to discuss the high priesthood of Christ. We're going to ask that question, how is it that this great king is able to make a people holy and willing to offer themselves freely? How, how is it that this, this king doesn't just destroy all of us? A king so mighty, a king that hates wickedness so much, a king whose, king whose arrows are so sharp in the heart of his enemies. How are we not his enemies? Because the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, today as, as, as we behold the great kingship of Christ, we behold that one who is the king of kings and lord of lords next week, We behold him as the the great high priest who forever intercedes for us. The high priest who has made that great sacrifice that allows sinners like me and you to be made right before him. In Revelation chapter nineteen describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the people of God forever with their King drink and eat in in happiness. When we behold his glory and, and take of that fruit of the vine with him. Partake of that bread representative of his flesh with him. When we sit with our King in his heavens and partake in a feast like no other and today as as we look toward that day where his reign will be complete and accomplished where all his enemies will be put under his feet we get to partake of communion we get to partake by faith symbolically in his flesh and blood. We get to partake of our great king and dine with him as we dine with each other. So my dad will come up and bless the communion, bless the elements after I pray. And brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice as you partake of his body and drink of his blood. Rejoice that you have a great king who has spilled his blood for your sake, who has let his flesh be broken that you might be saved. Rejoice that you have a great king who invites you to his table, who invites you to partake with him. Rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have, since your son is that great king. We thank you that he rules and reigns justly. That we don't have to be be weary as we do with men of this earth, that he will do something that is unrighteous or unjust, but that we have security in his truth. We know that everything he does is done in justice, that he executes judgment righteously, that he will ride out victoriously. Help us to trust wholly in this great king. Help us to, to not rely on our own strength, but, but to know our weakness, to know that we truly are weak and helpless, and that our only strength is found in Christ, our strong and mighty king. Pray this in Christ's name.